Section 15 of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section 15. Some of the Haunts of Burns. We left Carlisle at a little past eleven, and within the half-hour were at Gretna Green. Thence we rushed onward into Scotland through a flat and dreary tract of country, consisting mainly of desert and bog, where probably the moss-troopers were accustomed to take refuge after their raids into England. Anon, however, the hills hove themselves up to view, occasionally attaining a height which might almost be called mountainous. In about two hours we reached Dumfries, and alighted at the station there. Chill as the Scottish summer is reputed to be, we found it an awfully hot day, not a whit less so than the day before, but we sturdily adventured through the burning sunshine up into the town, inquiring our way to the residence of Burns. The street leading from the station is called Shakespeare Street, and at its farther extremity we read Burns Street on a corner house, the avenue thus designated having been formerly known as Mill Hole Bray. It is a vile lane, paved with small hard stones from side to side, and bordered by cottages or mean houses of whitewashed stone, joining one to another along the whole length of the street with not a tree, of course, or a blade of grass between the paving stones. The narrow lane was as hot as Toppet, and reeked with a genuine Scotch odour, being infested with unwashed children, and altogether in a state of chronic filth, although some women seemed to be hopelessly scrubbing the thresholds of their wretched dwellings. I never saw an outskirt of a town less fit for a poet's residence, or in which it would be more miserable for any man of cleanly predilections to spend his days. We asked for Burns' dwelling, and a woman pointed across the street to a two-story house built of stone, and whitewashed like its neighbors, but perhaps of a little more respectable aspect than most of them, though I hesitate in saying so. It was not a separate structure, but under the same continuous roof with the next— there was an inscription on the door bearing no reference to Burns, but indicating that the house was now occupied by a ragged or industrial school. On knocking, we were instantly admitted by a servant-girl, who smiled intelligently when we told her our errand, and showed us into a low and very plain parlour, not more than twelve or fifteen feet square. A young woman, who seemed to be a teacher in the school, soon appeared, and told us that this had been Burns' usual sitting-room, and that he had written many of his songs here. She then led us up a narrow staircase into a little bedchamber over the parlour. Connecting with it there is a very small room, or windowed closet, which Burns used as a study, and the bedchamber itself was the one where he slept in his later lifetime, and in which he died at last. Altogether, it is an exceedingly unsuitable place for a pastoral and rural poet to live or die in, even more unsatisfactory than Shakespeare's house, which has a certain homely picturesqueness that contrasts favorably with the suburban sordidness of the abode before us. 
The narrow lane, the paving stones, and the contiguity of wretched hovels are depressing to remember, and the steam of them, such is our human weakness, might almost make the poet's memory less fragrant. As already observed, it was an intolerably hot day. After leaving the house, we found our way into the principal street of the town, which, it may be fair to say, is of very different aspect from the wretched outskirt above described. Entering a hotel, in which, as a Dumfries guidebook assured us, Prince Charles Edward had once spent a night, we rested and refreshed ourselves, and then set forth in quest of the mausoleum of Burns. Coming to St. Michael's Church, we saw a man digging a grave, and, scrambling out of the hole, he led us into the churchyard, which was crowded full of monuments. Their general shape and construction are peculiar to Scotland, being a perpendicular tablet of marble or other stone, within a framework of the same material, somewhat resembling the frame of a looking-glass, and all over the churchyard these sepulchral memorials rise to the height of ten, fifteen, or twenty feet, forming quite an imposing collection of monuments, but inscribed with names of small general significance. It was easy, indeed, to ascertain the rank of those who slept below, for in Scotland it is the custom to put the occupation of the buried personage, as Skinner, Shoemaker, Flesher, on his tombstone. As another peculiarity, wives are buried under their maiden names instead of those of their husbands, thus giving a disagreeable impression that the married pair have bidden each other an eternal farewell on the edge of the grave. There was a footpath through this crowded churchyard, sufficiently well-worn to guide us to the grave of Burns, but a woman followed behind us who, it appeared, kept the key of the mausoleum, and was privileged to show it to strangers. The monument is a sort of Grecian temple, with pilasters and a dome, covering a space of about twenty feet square. It was formerly open to all the inclemencies of the Scotch atmosphere, but is now protected and shut in by large squares of rough glass, each pane being the size of one whole side of the structure. The woman unlocked the door and admitted us into the interior. Inlaid into the floor of the mausoleum is the gravestone of Burns, the very same that was laid over his grave by Jean Armour before this monument was built. Displayed against the surrounding wall is a marble statue of Burns at the plough, with the genius of Caledonia summoning the ploughman to turn poet. Methought it was not a very successful piece of work, for the plough was better sculptured than the man, and the man, though heavy and cloddish, was more effective than the goddess. Our guide informed us that an old man of ninety, who knew Burns, certifies this statue to be very like the original. The bones of the poet, and of Jean Armour, and of some of their children, lie in the vault over which we stood. Our guide, who was intelligent in her own plain way, and very agreeable to talk withal, said that the vault was opened about three weeks ago, on occasion of the burial of the eldest son of Burns. 
the poet's bones were disturbed, and the dry skull, once so brimming over, with powerful thought and bright and tender fantasies, was taken away, and kept for several days by a Dumfries doctor. It has since been deposited in a new leaden coffin, and restored to the vault. We learned that there is a surviving daughter of Burns' eldest son, and daughters likewise of the two younger sons, and, besides these, an illegitimate posterity by the eldest son, who appears to have been of disreputable life in his younger days. He inherited his father's failings, with some faint shadow, I have also understood, of the great qualities which have made the world tender of his father's vices and weaknesses. We listened readily enough to this paltry gossip, but found that it robbed the poet's memory of some of the reverence that was its due. Indeed, this talk over his grave had very much the same tendency and effect as the home scene of his life, which we had been visiting just previously. Beholding his poor, mean dwelling and its surroundings, and picturing his outward life and earthly manifestations from these, one does not so much wonder that the people of that day should have failed to recognize all that was admirable and immortal in a disreputable, drunken, shabbily clothed, and shabbily housed man, consorting with associates of damaged character, and, as his only ostensible occupation, gauging the whiskey which he too often tasted. Siding with Burns, as we needs must, in his plea against the world, let us try to do the world a little justice, too. It is far easier to know and honor a poet when his fame has taken shape in the spotlessness of marble than when the actual man comes staggering before you, besmeared with the sordid stains of his daily life. For my part, I chiefly wonder that his recognition dawned so brightly while he was still living. There must have been something very grand in his immediate presence, some strangely impressive characteristic in his natural behavior, to have caused him to seem like a demigod so soon. As we went back through the churchyard, we saw a spot where nearly four hundred inhabitants of Dumfries were buried during the cholera year, and also some curious old monuments with raised letters, the inscriptions on which were not sufficiently legible to induce us to puzzle them out, but I believe they mark the resting places of old covenanters, some of whom were killed by Claverhouse and his fellow ruffians. St. Michael's Church is of red freestone, and was built about a hundred years ago on an old Catholic foundation. Our guide admitted us into it, and showed us, in the porch, a very pretty little marble figure of a child asleep, with a drapery over the lower part, from beneath which appeared its two baby feet. It was truly a sweet little statue, and the woman told us that it represented a child of the sculptor, and that the baby, there still in its marble infancy, had died more than twenty-six years ago. Many ladies, she said, especially such as had ever lost a child, had shed tears over it. It was very pleasant to think of the sculptor bestowing the best of his genius and art to recreate his tender child in stone, 
and to make the representation as soft and sweet as the original. But the conclusion of the story has something that jars with our awakened sensibilities. A gentleman from London had seen the statue, and was so much delighted with it that he bought it of the father artist, after it had lain above a quarter of a century in the church porch. So this was not the real tender image that had come out of the father's heart. He had sold that truest one for a hundred guineas, and sculptured this mere copy to replace it. The first figure was entirely naked in its earthly and spiritual innocence. The copy, as I have said above, has a drapery over the lower limbs. But, after all, if we come to the truth of the matter, the sleeping baby may be as fitly reposited in the drawing-room of a connoisseur as in a cold and dreary church-porch. We went into the church, and found it very plain and naked, without altar decorations, and having its floor quite covered with unsightly wooden pews. The woman led us to a pew, cornering on one of the side aisles, and telling us that it used to be Burns' family pew, showed us his seat, which is in the corner by the aisle. It is so situated that a sturdy pillar hid him from the pulpit, and from the minister's eye. For Robin was no great friends with the ministers, said she. This touch, his seat behind the pillar, and Burns himself nodding in sermon time, or keenly observant of profane things, brought him before us to the life. In the corner seat of the next pew, right before Burns, and not more than two feet off, sat the young lady on whom the poet saw the unmentionable parasite, which he has immortalized in song. We were ungenerous enough to ask the lady's name, but the good woman could not tell it. This was the last thing which we saw in Dumfries worthy of record, and it ought to be noted that our guide refused some money which my companion offered her, because I had already paid her what she deemed sufficient. At the railway station we spent more than a weary hour waiting for the train, which at last came up and took us to Mochline. We got into an omnibus, the only conveyance to be had, and drove about a mile to the village, where we established ourselves at the Loudon Hotel, one of the various country inns which we have found in Great Britain. The town of Mochline, a place more redolent of Burns than almost any other, consists of a street or two of contiguous cottages, mostly whitewashed with thatched roofs. It has nothing sylvan or rural in the immediate village, and is as ugly a place as mortal man could contrive to make, or to render uglier through a succession of untidy generations. The fashion of paving the village street, and patching one shabby house on the gable end of another, quite shuts out all verdure and pleasantness. But, I presume, we are not likely to see a more genuine old Scotch village, such as they used to be in Burns' time, and long before, than this of Mochline. The church stands about midway up the street, and is built of red freestone, very simple in its architecture, with a square tower and pinnacles. In this sacred edifice and its churchyard 
was the scene of one of Burns' most characteristic productions, the Holy Fair. Almost directly opposite its gate, across the village street, stands Posy Nancy's Inn, where the jolly beggars congregated. The latter is a two-story redstone thatched house, looking old, but by no means venerable, like a drunken patriarch. It has small, old-fashioned windows, and may well have stood for centuries, though seventy or eighty years ago, when Burns was conversant with it, I should fancy it might have been something better than a beggar's alehouse. The whole town of Mochline looks rusty and time-worn, even the newer houses, of which there are several, being shadowed and darkened by the general aspect of the place. When we arrived, all the wretched little dwellings seemed to have belched forth their inhabitants into the warm summer evening. Everybody was chatting with everybody, on the most familiar terms, the bare-legged children gambled or quarrelled uproariously, and came freely, moreover, and looked into the window of our parlour. When we ventured out, we were followed by the gaze of the old town, people standing in their doorways, old women popping their heads from the chamber windows, and stalwart men, idle on a Saturday at e'en, after their week's hard labour, clustering at the street-corners, merely to stare at our unpretending selves. Except in some remote little town of Italy, where, besides, the inhabitants had the intelligible stimulus of beggary, I have never been honoured with nearly such an amount of public notice. The next forenoon my companion put me to shame by attending church, after vainly exhorting me to do the like, and, it being sacrament Sunday, and my poor friend being wedged into the farther end of a closely filled pew, he was forced to stay through the preaching of four several sermons, and came back perfectly exhausted and desperate. He was somewhat consoled, however, on finding that he had witnessed a spectacle of Scotch manners identical with that of Burns' holy fair, on the very spot where the poet located that immortal description. By way of further conformance to the customs of the country, we ordered a sheep's head and the broth, and did penance accordingly, and at five o'clock we took a fly and set out for Burns' farm of Mosgiel. Mosgiel is not more than a mile from Mochline, and the road extends over a high ridge of land with a view of far hills and green slopes on either side. Just before we reached the farm, the driver stopped to point out a hawthorn growing by the wayside, which he said was Burns' lousy thorn, and I devoutly plucked a branch, although I have really forgotten where or how this illustrious shrub has been celebrated. We then turned into a rude gateway, and almost immediately came to the farmhouse of Mosgiel, standing some fifty yards removed from the high road, behind a tall hedge of hawthorn, and considerably overshadowed by trees. The house is a whitewashed stone cottage, like thousands of others in England and Scotland, with a thatched roof on which grass and weeds have intruded in a picturesque though alien growth. There is a door and one window in front, besides another little window that peeps out among the thatch. 
close by the cottage and extending back at right angles from it, so as to enclose the farmyard, are two other buildings of the same size, shape, and general appearance as the house. Any one of the three looks just as fit for a human habitation as the two others, and all three look still more suitable for donkey stables and pigsties. As we drove into the farmyard, bounded on three sides by these three hovels, a large dog began to bark at us, and some women and children made their appearance, but seemed to demur about admitting us, because the master and mistress were very religious people, and had not yet come back from the sacrament at Mochline. However, it would not do to be turned back from the very threshold of Robert Burns, and as the women seemed to be merely straggling visitors, and nobody, at all events, had a right to send us away, we went into the back door, and, turning to the right, entered a kitchen. It showed a deplorable lack of housewifely neatness, and in it there were three or four children, one of whom, a girl eight or nine years old, held a baby in her arms. She proved to be the daughter of the people of the house, and gave us what leave she could to look about us. Thence we stepped across the narrow mid-passage of the cottage into the only other apartment below stairs, a sitting-room, where we found a young man eating bread and cheese. He informed us that he did not live there, and had only called in to refresh himself on his way home from church. This room, like the kitchen, was a noticeably poor one, and, besides being all that the cottage had to show for a parlor, it was a sleeping apartment, having two beds, which might be curtained off on occasion. The young man allowed us liberty, so far as in him lay, to go upstairs. Up we crept accordingly, and a few steps brought us to the top of the staircase over the kitchen, where we found the wretchedest little sleeping chamber in the world, with a sloping roof under the thatch, and two beds spread upon the bare floor. This, most probably, was Burns' chamber, or perhaps it may have been that of his mother's servant-maid, and, in either case, this rude floor, at one time or another, must have creaked beneath the poet's midnight tread. On the opposite side of the passage was the door of another attic chamber, opening which I saw a considerable number of cheeses on the floor. The whole house was pervaded with a frowsy smell, and also a dunghill odor, and it is not easy to understand how the atmosphere of such a dwelling can be any more agreeable or salubrious morally than it appeared to be physically. No virgin, surely, could keep a holy awe about her, while stowed higgledy-piggledy with coarse-natured rustics into this narrowness and filth. Such a habitation is calculated to make beasts of men and women, and it indicates a degree of barbarism which I did not imagine to exist in Scotland, that a tiller of broad fields, like the farmer of Mochline, should have his abode in a pigsty. It is sad to think of anybody, not to say a poet, but any human being, sleeping, eating, thinking, praying, and spending all his home life in this miserable hovel. But, methinks, I never in the least knew how to estimate the miracle of Burns' genius, 
nor his heroic merit for being no worse man, until I thus learned the squalid hindrances amid which he developed himself. Space, a free atmosphere, and cleanliness have a vast deal to do with the possibilities of human virtue. The biographers talk of the farm and Mosgiel as being damp and unwholesome, but I do not see why, outside of the cottage walls, it should possess so evil a reputation. It occupies a high, broad ridge, enjoying, surely, whatever benefit can come of a breezy sight, and sloping far downward before any marshy soil is reached. The high hedge and the trees that stand beside the cottage give it a pleasant aspect enough to one who does not know the grimy secrets of the interior, and the summer afternoon was now so bright that I shall remember the scene with a great deal of sunshine over it. Leaving the cottage we drove through a field which the driver told us was that in which Burns turned up the mouse's nest. It is the enclosure nearest to the cottage, and seems now to be a pasture, and a rather remarkably unfertile one. A little farther on the ground was whitened with an immense number of daisies, daisies, daisies everywhere, and in answer to my inquiry the driver said that this was the field where Burns ran his plowshare over the daisy. If so, the soil seems to have been consecrated to daisies by the song which he bestowed on that first immortal one. I alighted and plucked a whole handful of these wee, modest, crimson-tipped flowers, which will be precious to many friends in our own country, as coming from Burns' farm, and being of the same race and lineage as that daisy which he turned into an amaranthine flower, while seeming to destroy it. From Mosgiel we drove through a variety of pleasant scenes, some of which were familiar to us by their connection with Burns. We skirted, too, along a portion of the estate of Auchinleck, which still belongs to the Boswell family, the present possessor being Sir James Boswell, a grandson of Johnson's friend, and son of the Sir Alexander who was killed in a duel. Our driver spoke of Sir James as a kind, free-hearted man, but addicted to horse-races and similar pastimes, and a little too familiar with a wine-cup, so that poor Bozzy's booziness would appear to have become hereditary in his ancient line. There is no male heir to the estate of Auchinleck. The portion of the lands which we saw is covered with wood and much undermined with rabbit warrens, nor, though the territory extends over a large number of acres, is the income very considerable. By and by we came to the spot where Burns saw Miss Alexander, the lass of Ballachmile. It was on a bridge which, or more probably, a bridge that has been succeeded to the old one and is made of iron, crosses from bank to bank, high in air over a deep gorge of the road, so that the young lady may have appeared to Burns like a creature between earth and sky, and compounded chiefly of celestial elements. But in honest truth, the great charm of a woman in Burns' eyes was always her womanhood, and not the angelic mixture which other poets find in her. Our driver pointed out the course taken by the lass of Ballachmile, through the shrubbery, 
to a rock on the banks of the Luger, where it seems to be the tradition that Burns accosted her. The song implies no such interview. Lovers of whatever condition, high or low, could desire no lovelier scene in which to breathe their vows, the river flowing over its pebbly bed, sometimes gleaming into the sunshine, sometimes hidden deep in verdure, and here and there eddying at the foot of high and precipitous cliffs. This beautiful estate of Balakmile is still held by the family of Alexanders, to whom Burns' song has been given renown on cheaper terms than any other set of people ever attained it. How slight the tenure seems! A young lady happened to walk out one summer afternoon and crossed the path of a neighboring farmer, who celebrated the little incident in four or five warm, rude, at least not refined, though rather ambitious, and somewhat ploughman-like verses. Burns has written hundreds of better things, but henceforth for centuries that maiden has free admittance into the dreamland of beautiful women, and she and all her race are famous. I should like to know the present head of the family, and ascertain what value, if any, the members of it put upon the celebrity thus won. We passed through Catrine, known hereabouts as the clean village of Scotland. Certainly, as regards the point indicated, it has greatly the advantage of Mochline, whither we now returned without seeing anything else worth writing about. There was a rainstorm during the night, and in the morning the rusty old sloping street of Mochline was glistening with wet, while frequent showers came spattering down. The intense heat of many days past was exchanged for a chilly atmosphere, much more suitable to a stranger's idea of what Scotch temperature ought to be. We found after breakfast that the first train northward had already gone by, and that we must wait till nearly two o'clock for the next. I merely ventured out once during the forenoon, and took a brief walk through the village, in which I have left little to describe. Its chief business appears to be the manufacture of snuff-boxes. There are perhaps five or six shops, or more, including those licensed to sell only tea and tobacco. The best of them have the characteristics of village stores in the United States, dealing in a small way with an extensive variety of articles. I peeped into the open gateway of the churchyard, and saw that the ground was absolutely stuffed with dead people and the surface crowded with gravestones, both perpendicular and horizontal. All Burns' old Mochline acquaintance are doubtless there, and the armors among them, except Bonnie Jean, who sleeps by her poet's side. The family of armor is now extinct in Mochline. Arriving at the railway station, we found a tall, elderly, comely gentleman walking to and fro waiting for the train. He proved to be a Mr. Alexander, it may fairly be presumed the Alexander of Balakmile, a blood relation of the lovely lass. Wonderful efficacy of a poet's verse that should shed a glory from long ago on this old gentleman's white hair. These Alexanders, by the by, 
are not an old family on the Ballock-Mile estate, the father of the lass having made a fortune in trade, and established himself as the first landed proprietor of his name in these parts. The original family was named Whiteford. Our ride to Ayr presented nothing very remarkable, and, indeed, a cloudy and rainy day takes the varnish off the scenery, and causes a woeful diminution in the beauty and impressiveness of everything we see. Much of our way lay along a flat, sandy level in a southerly direction. We reached Ayr in the midst of hopeless rain, and drove to the King's Arms Hotel. In the intervals of showers I took peeps at the town, which appeared to have many modern or modern-fronted edifices, although there are likewise tall, grey, gabled, and quaint-looking houses in the by-streets, here and there, betokening an ancient place. The town lies on both sides of the air, which is here broad and stately, and bordered with dwellings that look from their windows directly down the passing tide. I crossed the river by a modern and handsome stone bridge, and recrossed it, at no great distance, by a venerable structure of four grey arches, which must have bestridden the stream ever since the early days of Scottish history. Those are the two brigs of air, whose midnight conversation was overheard by Burns, while other auditors were aware only of the rush and rumble of the wintry stream among the arches. The ancient bridge is steep and narrow, and paved like a street, and defended by a parapet of red freestone, except at the two ends, where some mean old shops allow scanty room for the pathway to creep between. Nothing else impressed me hereabouts, unless I mention that, during the rain, the women and girls went about the streets of air barefooted to save their shoes. The next morning wore a lowering aspect, as if it felt itself destined to be one of many consecutive days of storm. After a good scotch breakfast, however, of fresh herrings and eggs, we took a fly and started at a little past ten for the banks of the dune. On our way, at about two miles from Ayr, we drew up at a roadside cottage, on which was an inscription to the effect that Robert Burns was born within its walls. It is now a public house, and of course we alighted and entered its little sitting-room, which, as we at present see it, is a neat apartment with the modern improvement of a ceiling. The walls are much overscribbled with names of visitors, and the wooden door of a cupboard in the wainscot, as well as all the other woodwork of the room, is cut and carved with initial letters. So likewise are two tables which, having received a coat of varnish over the inscriptions, form really curious and interesting articles of furniture. I have seldom, though I do not personally adopt this mode of illustrating my humble name, felt inclined to ridicule the natural impulse of most people thus to record themselves at the shrines of poets and heroes. On a panel, led into the wall in a corner of the room, is a portrait of Burns, copied from the original picture by Nasmith. The floor of this apartment is of boards, which are probably a recent substitute for the ordinary flagstones of a peasant's cottage. There is but one other room pertaining to the genuine birthplace of Robert Burns. 
It is the kitchen into which we now went. It has a floor of flagstones, even ruder than those of Shakespeare's house, though perhaps not so strangely cracked and broken as the latter, over which the hoof of Satan himself might seem to have been trampling. A new window has been opened through the wall towards the road, but on the opposite side is the little original window of only four small panes through which came the first daylight that shone upon the Scottish poet. At the side of the room, opposite the fireplace, is a recess containing a bed which can be hidden by curtains. In that humble nook of all places in the world, Providence was pleased to deposit the germ of richest human life which mankind then had within its circumference. These two rooms, as I have said, make up the whole sum and substance of Burns' birthplace, for there were no chambers nor even attics, and the thatched roof formed the only ceiling of kitchen and sitting-room, the height of which was that of the whole house. The cottage, however, is attached to another edifice of the same size and description, as these little habitations often are, and, moreover, a splendid addition has been made to it since the poet's renown began to draw visitors to the wayside alehouse. The old woman of the house led us through an entry, and showed a vaulted hall, of no vast dimensions to be sure, but marvellously large, and splendid as compared with what might be anticipated from the outward aspect of the cottage. It contained a bust of Burns, and was hung round with pictures and engravings, principally illustrative of his life and poems. In this part of the house, too, there is a parlor, fragrant with tobacco smoke, and, no doubt, many a noggin of whiskey is here quaffed to the memory of the bard, who professed to draw so much inspiration from that potent liquor. We bought some engravings of Kirk Alloway, the Bridge of Dune, and the Monument, and gave the old woman a fee besides, and took our leave. A very short drive farther brought us within sight of the monument, and to the hotel, situated close by the entrance of the ornamental grounds within which the former is enclosed. We rang the bell at the gate of the enclosure, but were forced to wait a considerable time, because the old man, the regular superintendent of the spot, had gone to assist at the laying of the cornerstone of the new kirk. He appeared anon and admitted us, but immediately hurried away to be present at the concluding ceremonies, leaving us locked up with Burns. The enclosure around the monument is beautifully laid out as an ornamental garden, and abundantly provided with rare flowers and shrubbery, all tended with loving care. The monument stands on an elevated site, and consists of a massive basement story, three-sided, above which rises a light and elegant Grecian temple, a mere dome supported on Corinthian pillars, and opened to all the winds. The edifice is beautiful in itself, though I know not what peculiar appropriateness it may have, as the memorial of a Scottish rural poet. The door of the basement story stood open, and, entering, we saw a bust of Burns in a niche, looking keener, more refined, 
but not so warm and whole-souled as his pictures usually do. I think the likeness cannot be good. In the center of the room stood a glass case in which were reposited the two volumes of the little pocket Bible that Burns gave to Highland Mary when they pledged their troth to one another. It is poorly printed on coarse paper. A verse of scripture referring to the solemnity and awfulness of vows is written within the cover of each volume in the poet's own hand, and fastened to one of the covers is a lock of Highland Mary's golden hair. This Bible had been carried to America by one of her relatives, but was sent back to be fitly treasured here. There is a staircase within the monument, by which we ascended to the top, and had a view of both Briggs and Dune, the scene of Tam O'Shanter's misadventure being close at hand. Descending, we wandered through the enclosed garden, and came to a little building in a corner, on entering which we found the two statues of Tam and Souter Watt, ponderous stonework enough, yet permeated in a remarkable degree with living warmth and jovial hilarity. From this part of the garden, too, we again beheld the old brig of Dune, over which the Tam galloped in such imminent and awful peril. It is a beautiful object in the landscape, with one high graceful arch, ivy-grown, and shadowed all over and around with foliage. When we had waited a good while, the old gardener came, telling us that he had heard an excellent prayer at laying the cornerstone of the new kirk. He now gave us some roses and sweet briar, and led us out from his pleasant garden. We immediately hastened to Kirk Alloway, which is within two or three minutes' walk of the monument. A few steps ascend from the roadside, through a gate, into the old graveyard, in the midst of which stands the kirk. The edifice is wholly roofless, but the side walls and gable ends are quite entire though portions of them are evidently modern restorations. Never was there a plainer little church, or one with smaller architectural pretensions. No New England meeting-house has more simplicity in its very self, though poetry and fun have clambered and clustered so wildly over Kirk Alloway that it is difficult to see it as it actually exists. By the by, I do not understand why Satan and an assembly of witches should hold their revels within a consecrated precinct, but the weird scene has so established itself in the world's imaginative faith that it must be accepted as an authentic incident, in spite of rule and reason to the contrary. Possibly some carnal minister, some priest of pious aspect and hidden infidelity, had dispelled the consecration of the holy edifice by his pretense of prayer, and thus made it the resort of unhappy ghosts and sorcerers and devils. The interior of the kirk even now is applied to quite as impertinent a purpose as when Satan and the witches used it as a dancing-hall, for it is divided in the midst by a wall of stone masonry, and each compartment has been converted into a family burial place. The name on one of the monuments is Crawford, the other bore no inscription. It is impossible not to feel that these good people, 
whoever they may be, had no business to thrust their prosaic bones into a spot that belongs to the world, and where their presence jars with the emotions, be they sad or gay, which the pilgrim brings thither. They shut us out from our own precincts, too, from that inalienable possession which Burns bestowed in free gift upon mankind, by taking it from the actual earth and annexing it to the domain of imagination. And here these wretched squatters have lain down to their long sleep, after barring each of the two doorways of the kirk, with an iron grate. May their rest be troubled till they rise and let us in. Kirk Alloway is inconceivably small, considering how large a space it fills in our imagination before we see it. I paced its length outside the wall, and found it only seventeen of my paces, and not more than ten of them in breadth. There seem to have been but very few windows, all of which, if I rightly remember, are now blocked up with mason-work of stone. One mullioned window, tall and narrow in the eastern gable, might have been seen by Tam O'Shanter, blazing with devilish light as he approached along the road from air, and there is a small and square one on the side nearest the road, into which he might have peered as he sat on horseback. Indeed, I could easily have looked through it, standing on the ground, had not the opening been walled up. There is an odd kind of belfry at the peak of one of the gables, with the small bell still hanging in it, and this is all that I remember of the Kirk Alloway, except that the stones of its material are grey and irregular. The road from Ayr passes Alloway Kirk, and crosses the dune by a modern bridge, without swerving much from a straight line. To reach the old bridge, it appears to have made a bend, shortly after passing the kirk, and then to have turned sharply towards the river. The new bridge is within a minute's walk of the monument, and we went thither, and leaned over its parapet to admire the beautiful dune, flowing wildly and sweetly between its deep and wooded banks. I never saw a lovelier scene, although this might have been even lovelier if a kindly sun had shone upon it. The ivy-grown ancient bridge, with its high arch, through which we had a picture of the river and the green banks beyond, was absolutely the most picturesque object in a quiet and gentle way that ever blessed my eyes. Bonny dune, with its wooded banks, and the boughs dipping into the water. The memory of them, at this moment, affects me like the song of birds, and Burns crooning some verses, simple and wild, in accordance with their native melody. It was impossible to depart without crossing the very bridge of Tam's adventure, so we went thither, over a now disused portion of the road, and, standing on the centre of the arch, gathered some ivy-leaves from that sacred spot. This done, we returned as speedily as might be to air, whence, taking the rail, we soon beheld Ailsa Craig rising like a pyramid out of the sea, drawing nearer to Glasgow, Ben Lamond hove in sight, with a dome-like summit supported by a shoulder on each side. But a man is better than a mountain, and we had been holding intercourse 
if not with the reality, at least with the stalwart ghost of one of earth's memorable sons, amid the scenes where he had lived and sung. We shall appreciate him better as a poet hereafter, for there is no writer whose life as a man has so much to do with his fame, and throws such a necessary light upon whatever he has produced. Henceforth there will be a personal warmth for us in everything that he wrote, and, like his countrymen, we shall know him in a kind of personal way, as if we had shaken hands with him, and felt the thrill of his actual voice. End of section 15